Hey there, friend. My name's Sarai, and I host a spooky, casual podcast called Freaky AF, where I tell you stories of conspiracies, true crime, and of the supernatural. So if that's your kind of shiz, come check us out. I'm sure we'll be great friends. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, and a bunch of other places. Or you can look us up on Twitter and Instagram, where Freaky AF Pod, that's F R E A K Y A F P O D. Come get spooked, y'all. There are women that have changed the course of history, yet they are hardly spoken of. Today, we bring you the story of Juana Azurduri de Padilla who was instrumental during the fight for Bolivian independence, and the story of Rufina Amaya, a woman whose testimony brought to light one of the worst massacres during the Salvadoran Civil War. This episode does contain graphic topics, including war, rape, and murder. Listen with caution. Stories, folklore, legends, leyendas, cuentos, y más. This is Spooky Tales. Listen, escuchen, at your own risk. Hi everyone, this is Christina. And this is MJ. And this is another episode of Spooky Tales, the podcast where we tell you about spooky things, myths, legends from Latin America, and this month, women's history. Yay! Today, we are bringing you two stories of uh, historic women in Latin America. I saw your notes, and I remembered who you were doing before, but I just forgot, MJ, so <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, my it's from someone from Peru, right? It's a woman from the from Peru? Peru Bolivia area. So um, I okay, I am okay. doing it on Azurduy de Padilla, uh, Juana Azurduy de Padilla. Before before you start, I do want to say I want to warn everyone for mine. It is a horrible story that happened during the Salvadoran Civil War. Um, I'm going to be telling a story about a woman who brought this horrible massacre to light. Um, and it's very triggering. Horrible things happened. I'm not going to go into like gory details of what happened during the massacre. But just know that the story does involve murder, murder of civilians, and uh, rape. So it's it's a tragic story. It's during the Civil War in El Salvador. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but it... it some of the worst human rights like violations occurred during this war. And uh, so, yeah, just, you know, it's a heavy topic. And yeah, just be warned about when my story comes. <laughs> um, yeah, my story isn't that much better either. There's a lot less detail when it comes to the war, but it my story does not have a happy ending. Not really. So this is what we're doing today. We're bringing the tragedy. Yeah, we really are. We really are. Um, our, do, do we have a listener story today? No, no listener story because we're talking about women's history. Okay. And non-spooky things, so. I, this is our last episode on this. I, I have really enjoyed Me researching too. all this stuff. And though. I found, like, there's so many, like, stories out there, like, hundreds, literally, that I I, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to cover them all, but I'm certainly interested. We're going to try. In 
you know, diving into this stuff and buying books, which, you know, any excuse to buy a book for me. <laughs> True. <laughs> so as I was saying for, as Christina put on um, Twitter, uh, my, her story uh, uh, this week is Juana Azurduy de Padilla. And Juana was a military, military leader in the war for Bolivian independence, where she led indigenous people of Alto Peru against the Spanish. So Juana was born in 1780 in Chuquisaca. I'm probably saying it wrong. I applaud you for trying. I, I tried. It's a it's an indigenous word from the Bolivia, Peru area, and I have trouble with you know, Mexica, Aztec names, let alone anything else outside of that region. We have, yeah, we have trouble with, like, English and Spanish, so, yeah. <laughs> yes, and then I also found out that, like, I butchered uh, last week's <laughs> Irish names. I am so sorry. I tried my best. Um, what? I thought you learned how to say that. <laughs> I tried it, but then it's like when I, like, start recording, everything went by. Understandable. <laughs> but her mother was an indigenous woman and her father was a Spanish man. And she grew up in Santa Teresa convent with nuns. And growing up, she saw the mistreatment of the Spanish towards the indigenous people. Uh, she saw this firsthand in the way mine workers were brutally treated. And this caused her to become an ally in the indigenous revolutionary movement. In 1802, she married a man named Manuel Padilla. They had five children together. At one point, she had to leave her family for a year to fight in the Royal Army to liberate Alto Peru, Upper Peru, modern-day Bolivia. The country's unrest began in 1809 with the beginning of guerrilla groups. In 1810, Juana joined the Liberating Army. She was given a sword by Manuel Bel Belgrano, the leader of the Liberating Army, as a symbol for her bravery in battle. In 1811, royal forces took over Alto Peru and confiscated the Padilla lands, capturing Juana and her children. Padilla rescued them. Together, they fled to Tarabuco. As the war continued, 10,000 people were recruited. Juana brought together the Leal Batallon, the Loyal Battalion, which was led by Manuel Belgrano. Belgrano. Uh, she recruited men called Criados and other women known as the Amazonas. So she recruited a lot of people. That's what oh, she, she okay. was really good at. And I love how the, um, how the women in this war were called Las Amazonas. I'm going to have to look into them <laughs> later. In the I future. was just about to say that, too. They had a badass name. Yeah. In 1814, Juana and her husband had pushed back the royal forces, but they anticipated the Spanish to counterattack. Juana and Manuel separated, Manuel going one way and Juana and her children going another. Juana took refuge in Segura Valley. There, she was told her husband was in danger. They ended up, like, surviving this whole ordeal. But then in 1815, during the battle at Pintatora, she started having contractions and left to give birth to her fourth child. Like, she was fighting right up to her contractions, you guys. Oh my god. She wow. was, like, fully, like, nine months pregnant, fighting. Wow. I just, I can't even. Like, I couldn't even move in my ninth month. I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I could barely walk. I did work uh, up to both 
birth of the children mm-hmm. that I had, uh, but um, that's because I had to because I needed PTO, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could use that for maternity leave because you know this country has no good Bullshit. maternity leave. Yeah, I everyone, I went to school so, yeah. with my both my kids, but man, I was like falling asleep in in my classes. Uh, so uh. Unfortunately, while living in the mountains, her children would eventually succumb to sickness and the lack of food and shelter. Aww. So four of her five children died. Oh, yeah, I know. It's she literally gave up so much. And then in 1816, <sighs> yeah. uh, in the Battle of La Laguna, five months pregnant, Juana was injured. Her husband was captured <gasps> and beheaded. They mounted his <gasps> head on a pike in the village of Laguna. Oh my. God, what the hell? This all happened while she was like five months pregnant, you guys. Five, six months pregnant. Fucking monsters, yeah. man. And she retreated for a while, but later led a counterattack to retrieve her husband's body while pregnant, by the way. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, she gave birth to her daughter, Luisa Padilla, and she gave birth in the banks of Rio Grande in Peru, not Mexico, you guys. There's another Rio Grande. Huh. I didn't Which know that. I didn't, Yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, she joined Martin Gomez's army, but when he died, she moved to Sal- Salta with her daughter, where she lived in poverty. In 1825, Bolivia declared its independence. She asked this new nation to give her her land back, but was ignored. What? Are you Oh, serious? no, it gets, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets, no. Oh, it gets oh worse. Oh, my God. But she was granted a colonel pension however her pension was revoked in 1857 during the government of jose maria linares because they were doing some kind of like revamping the government and and just looking into like it was just a bunch of bureaucracy and he held power and he was like no you're not getting your pension so leaving her in complete poverty after she literally gave up her entire family and was one of the main reasons why Bolivia won the war because she led so many people. After all that she did, I am appalled at this. She is one of the like few figures in history. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Women are very essential, but women don't often get to be in the position she got to in, in history. They weren't la- yeah. allowed very much. They could be soldiers. They can be this, but they did not always get the ability to be so high in rank and lead thousands upon thousands of people. And she was able to. And it yeah. still wasn't enough. Wow. So it, it left her, you know, this this uh, Jose Maria Linares left her in complete poverty because he stopped giving her her pension. And she adopted in her later years an indigenous boy who took care of her until her passing on May 25th, 1862. She was 82 years old. She was buried in a communal cemetery. And a hundred years later, her body was exhumed and her remains are loca- located now in Sucre. At the height of her military career, she led 6,000 men into battle. Wow. She was like so essential. To Bolivia getting their independence. Her and her husband. Mm-hmm. Her husband gets a lot of recognition. But I feel like there's not a lot of information on her. And the way that the government treated her after, you know, they got their independence. They wouldn't give her land back. And then that wow. fucking president was like, didn't even recognize. He took her pension. He, yeah. yeah. And she literally, she, her, she lost four of her five children and her husband. Yeah. 
Yeah. For Bolivia. Insane. And she, oh my God, it makes me so angry. But yeah, for those who want to continue reading on her story, I found four books. That was like the extent of it. There's not many books on her. And uh, called uh, Juana Azurdui, Spanish edition by Pacho O'Donnell. Another kid's book called Juana Azurdui, Para Niñas y Niños by Nidia Fink. And uh, another book, Nos Vieron Pequeñas Cuando Éramos Gigante, Juana Azurdui, Mujer, Madre y Guerrera, Spanish edition by Adrián Silisque. And a fourth book, Doubt About the Effectiveness of Targets in, Restributi- in Restributive Policies, Case of the Juana Azurdui Bonus Program in the m- Municipalities of El Alto, La Paz by Jacqueline Pontaja Salgado. That one sounds like a textbook. Yeah, that does sound like a textbook. <laughs> but if you are a historian, this is for you. Okay, okay. I might get that third one. Yeah, the one I sent you? Yes. Yes, that's the one mm-hmm. I want to. And that was her story. That was like a kid's book, right? No, uh, no the second. Uh, no? I don't even think so. Oh, the first two were. No, the first one is just like a regular biography. And the second oh. one, another okay. kid's book called Juana Azurdui Para Niñas y Niños. There's only one kid's book. Okay, okay. And so the third one's just like a biography of her? I think so. I don't know yet. It's all in Spanish, and I didn't read the description, but it is about her. And if it is a kid's book, awesome. If not, awesome, too, because for me. (laughs) But there is one kid's book, and it's the uh, Juana Azurdui Para Niños y Niñas, or Para Niñas y Niños, something like that. (laughs) I'll send you a link. Let me see if I find it. Oh, it's not a lot. Mm-mm. And uh, three out of the four books are in Spanish. So. Okay, okay. Okay, well, I'll definitely be getting the kids one and that third one that you mentioned. Not the one that sounds like a textbook, though. That's too much for me. <laughs> yeah, that's too much for me, too. But if you, hey, if there's some people who are really into that kind of stuff and, like, really want to, like, fully dive deep. So if you're one of those people... By the fourth one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my turn? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be telling the story of Rufina Amaya. But before we can even begin talking about Rufina and the massacre that is now known as El Mosote Massacre, some context is necessary about the Salvadorian Civil War But before that, we also need some context about the Cold War. And this is why my notes are long. (laughs) I am here for it because I know absolutely nothing about this. So everything you say, it will be news to me. All right. Well, the Salvadorian Civil War lasted 12 years from 1980 to 1992, which is when I was born. My dad lived through it. He doesn't tell us much about it, except that. I I recall when my when both my brother and I said we wanted to join the military. He like looked at us and the most serious he's ever the most serious he's ever I've ever seen him. He said like war is not a game. It's mm-hmm. terrible and like you can never unsee the piles of dead bodies. Like it's traumatizing. And that's all he's really and then we watched one movie um about the civil war that i can't remember the name of um voces inocentes 
which is not like a super accurate depiction of the movie, but there is some accuracy in it. Mm-hmm. And my dad sat through it and he, but he, some people in the movie, like they changed their names, but he like remembers them. Mm-hmm who they're based on so he doesn't say much about it but those that live through it and especially those in the rural areas it is a it was a horrifying horrifying war oh, yeah because it's oh it's always like the poor the poorest of the people that get dealt the shittiest hand when it comes to this for sure um so by the end of the civil war 75,000 salvadorians had lost their lives mm-hmm. so but for some context before I get into the Salvadoran Civil War. Um, so after World War II, two superpowers emerged, the United States and the Soviet Union. And they couldn't go to war to each other um, because of the threat of nuclear war and mutual destruction. So instead, they waged proxy wars. Mm-hmm. So the United States, they feared the expansion of the Soviet Union into Eastern Europe and the spread of communism all over the world. So President Truman announced that the United States would contain the spread of communism. And this is now known as the Truman Doctrine. (sighs) And so the United States financially and in some occasions directly aided wars in Latin America in order to prevent communism. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I know we hear a lot about like the Vietnam War, Russia supplying the Viet Cong. And we hear about like the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mm -hmm. the pig, the what is that called? The, the Bay, Bay of Pigs? Pigs? Yeah. Yeah, but we don't, at least, and maybe because they don't want to cover this in school or there's no time. I don't know. But I don't remember world history in world history or when we talk about the, the Cold War. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of mention about the U.S. involvement in Latin America. There is zero because I didn't even find out about the involvement of the United States until like, I'm not even kidding you, like three years ago. Uh, like three or four years ago but it's it they don't they don't talk about this yeah oh, the only thing as as far as it goes we hear about the bay of pigs mm-hmm. but even then it's like we don't hear the full story but yes so they were heavily involved in latin america and overthrowing governments and stuff like that yep this returns us to el salvador so before the official start of the civil war tensions between peasants and the oligarchs were rising and so this is around the 1930s. Uh, one of the worst occurrences in, uh, that happened before the Civil War, a general, his name was Maximiliano uh, Hernandez, he carried out an operation now known as La Matanza, which means the slaughter in English. Mm-hmm. So this was the killing of 30,000 coffee farmers in <gasps> El Salvador. Yeah, it's a lot. It's an insane amount. Oh my god, like I'm there's like this when you said that this huge wave of shock just oh my god. And I didn't I didn't know about this one. Oh, it's going to be one of those another story where I'm going to end up crying. Oh yeah, Rufina's story it's oh, it's a Are lot. Are kidding me? Like, I'm teary-eyed already. Like when oh you my said god, it's 30,000 so I'm this like is, this is just <laughs> this is just the context for the, for the civil war. I'm already Not like, even listen, like this. I'm already in my feels right now. Okay. <laughs> Christina's oh gonna have okay, to so... edit a lot of me like ugly crying over here. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'll probably leave it in. No, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so um, they were protesting ter- terrible working conditions. The thirty thousand people that were murdered by the government were mostly indigenous. The killings occurred over the span of a week. 
And then after that, they went, the government went on to ban indigenous language, uh, languages, clothing, traditions. And as the years went on, the economic gap between the rural and indigenous populations and the oligarchs, it just grew and grew and grew. So the rich became richer and the rural communities, the indigenous populations became more poor. And by the by the 1970s, there was a middle class growing, but the lower class was even lower. Right. Yeah. So together by the 1970s, the middle class, which was like a growing population of university students and the lower class, they began working together towards the actions that would spark the civil war. So there, uh, there was groups of armed resistance began forming. And this included middle-class university students and coffee farmers, cotton growers, and th- they would become the guerrilla soldiers. And so guerrilla warfare and protests increased. By the 1980s, the different armed groups became one group, and they were called La Frente Farabundo Marti para Liberación Nacional, or the FMLN. This group was named after a coffee worker that was killed during La Matanza, the massacre I mentioned earlier. So this brings us up to the 1980s now. Under President Carter, why can't I say his name right now? Under President Carter, whatever. (laughs) Carter. 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 Am I just like... In my own head, thinking I, think I sound weird saying your that, own or do head, I sound weird? Because you just <laughs> okay. you said Carter, so I think you're just in your own head. <laughs> Under President Carter, an effort to address human rights abuses and inequality in El Salvador began, but this was all under the pretext of like if we provide human aid or if we provide aid to uh, overcome the inequality this will prevent communism. Mm. But then under Reagan, it went from, yes, yeah. (laughs) Under, it went from addressing human rights to just plain stopping communism. So economic and military aid was provided to the Salvadoran government. And the FMLN was receiving aid from mostly Nicaragua and Cuba. And Nicaragua and Cuba, they were receiving aid from the Soviet Union. So indirectly, they were receiving aid from the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, you could say. The FMLN did not receive anywhere near the amount of aid that the Salvadoran army did. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it was like $4 billion that the Salvadoran army was getting. But at the height of the war, El Salvador was receiving $1 to $2 million a day for military aid. That's a lot of money. Yes, and this was all under Reagan. He just uh, kept course, throwing money and course, throwing money. Of course, Yeah, <laughs> at El Salvador. I can't stand Reagan. Yeah, more um, human rights violations were happening, like civilians being murdered and stuff like that. Reagan was shaping these as the fault of the FMLN. Later on, after everything, the United Nations would go and do a report that showed over 90% of the human rights violations were committed by right-wing military forces trained and aided by the United States. But of course, propaganda, so they tried to frame everything as the fault of the far left. Always. And this, this propaganda is, it goes far, it was really well done, because like, if you talk to a lot of people in El Salvador that are not from the rural areas... A lot of them, like even my my dad, sometimes he'll be like, he he's not far he's not far right or right. He's like in the middle, but he 
and a lot of things that they heard in the war, people in the city heard like both sides were doing wrong. But again, this report showed that over 90% of the things that were wrong were committed by the far right mm -hmm. and by the, the Salvadoran government. But most people will say both sides are something wrong. Both sides were equally wrong. And that's how well the propaganda was. Like people to this day still blame both sides for the war. Yeah. And going on to that, they still like with everything that happened, has happened within a few years with migrants, people are like, why should they come here? It's like the United States fucked everything up. Yeah, one to two million a day for military aid. Like that's ridiculous. That's that is a yeah. ridiculous amount. Um. So in in 1979, the U.S. covertly aided a coup. Um. Some historians believe this was done by the Salvadorans army army's own accord, not the United States. But <laughs> it's believed the United States. Uh, yeah, I don't, and I don't know which one is right, honestly. But it, the United States supposedly covertly aided a coup that was done, and so a moderate Democratic Party took over. And this moderate Democratic Party was too liberal for the right wing group called Arena, and um, so they began to do some ruthless tactics to get rid of the opposition. And this included killing activists and church leaders. Um, and it's worth noting that in El Salvador at the time, Catholicism was largely tied to something called liberation theology. Mm -hmm. So um, churches believed in helping the most vulner vulnerable. They took mm -hmm. a stand against right-winged, rich oligarchs. Mm -hmm. um, they were for the people, something you might not say when you look at Christianity in the United States right now. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Um, but they were truly for the people. And so, and I'm, I think you might know this story, but an uh, archbishop, Oscar Romero. Mm -hmm. I've heard of him. Yes. So he was re recently canonized as a saint uh, in yes. 2018. But at the time, he published a letter, a public letter to President Jimmy Carter, urging him to seize military aid to El Salvador. And in his letter, he said, um, political power is in the hands of the armed forces. They know only how to repress the people and defend the interests of the Salvadoran oligarchy. Oh, and then he also said, uh, U.S. support would only sharpen the injustice and repression against the organizations of the people, which repeatedly have been struggling to gain respect for their fundamental human rights. So he published this letter in February of 1980, and he was assassinated on March 24th in 1980 uh, during mass. Him and I think there were other people killed during this the same instance during mass and the the you can hear you can hear the audio of the mass you can hear the moment that the right winged uh, military forces they might have not been military forces they might be what do you call when it's like a oh paramilitary forces they might have been paramilitary forces and I did not know this I learned this upon writing my notes but one of the captains responsible for the murder of oscar romero he fled el salvador to avoid trial and for a few years he lived in modesto what California. the hell yeah he used to sell cars there wow mm -hmm. wow he fled in 2004 that was the year before i moved to modesto oh i moved there in 2006 or 7 one of the two i forget but yeah, I was like, what the f I told my dad and he was like, are you serious? Like, that's so like, what a weird and wild world this is. Like he, he was t 
taken aback. <laughs> that is weird. Like that. That's like what? What is it? Uh, it's a small world. It really is. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that guy, he's um, I didn't write down his name, but you can um, I'll I'll put the links to all this anyway in the on our website eventually. But um, <laughs> he he it's a there was this um, journalist or newspaper turned website uh, called El Faro dot net that does a lot of reporting. It did a lot of reporting on the war and like uh, reporting things after on all this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I found this story. The that guy he talked to a journalist there um because he's somewhere I don't know where he is now he's he's still hiding out from the Salvadoran government um but he now lives like somewhere in the mountains in poverty begging his children for forgiveness so at least there's that <laughs> wait and which mountains here in the United States no 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 my bad he left um he left Modesto in 2004. Oh, okay. But he lived in Modesto up to 2004. And he left and he fled. And he's somewhere in the mountains in, like, Central America. I just don't know if he's in El Salvador again. Oh, okay. But he's eating, like, food scraps, begging for work, begging for his uh, children's forgiveness. Oh, I would hate to be related to him. Yeah, I'm sure they do because they don't talk to him. But back to back to this. Um... Some for some, this marks the beginning, the official beginning of the Civil War. Um, others put it at 1979. This occurred in 1980. So um, by the end of the war, it is estimated that two dozen priests were assassinated, and then there was like a another big occurrence of this was the six priests and their housekeepers and one of the daughters of the housekeepers in 1989. Um, they were murdered, uh, assassinated. This case was reopened and the courts ordered the arrest of former President Alfredo Cristiani, who fled El Salvador in 2021 for this murder. But that's just that that was like the the last group of priests that were murdered in 1989. Why do they always flee? First, they have the balls to do such atrocities. And then they're like, Ron, like, why did you do them in the first place? Right. Yeah, because they don't want to get caught. Yeah. The other day on Twitter, his daughter or i don't know what she was posted a picture of this president president with her as like a little kid and the quote tweet quote tweets were like you know this man murdered like six people and like they were just like eating her up in the quote tweets right as they should like i if if Mm -hmm. i was of any relation to this person i'd keep it hush hush i'd be like don't know him never met him in my life he's your father um yeah my mom kind of like cheated on him so who knows you know it's like i would do shit right? like that i would deny it i would deny it yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be associated with a war criminal exactly i'd be like don't know him don't know <laughs> so that's what they say he's my father her. but mm. pull pull a mariah i don't know i don't her. know her. <laughs> i love that <laughs> um Atrocities by the right-wing groups, they grew throughout the war. They used tactics that the United States taught them, specifically tactics called draining the sea and scorched earth. So this meant that they would weaken the insurgency by going after civilians that supported the rebels. And these civilians, where they were largely uh, indigenous groups, uh, campesinos, Mm -hmm. farm workers in the countryside, and these were direct tactics used in Vietnam. They did the same mm-hmm. thing, the draining the sea. Yes. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so they killed and displaced civilians by the thousands. In 1981, the battalion called Atlacat Battalion was mobilized. And this was a rapid response counterinsurgency battalion. 
So they were trained and organized by the United States Army in the School of the Americas. Mm-hmm. It might have been School of Americas. This is this was in Panama. It's now in Fort Benning. But graduates of this school went on to commit some of the worst human rights violations um, because this is, this is what they were trained to do. Mm-hmm. And the school received a lot of backlash, like a lot of protests. I, I cannot remember if it's still going, the school, or if it was finally shut down. But a lot of war criminals came out of this, dictators, um, especially Latin America, from this school of America. Were the people ever held responsible, like the people who were in charge of the school? I don't think so. I didn't look into the school specifically. Oh, okay. um, only Cause... I just looked into them to write that this is where the Alcatat Battalion was battalion was trained. Okay, that's something I'm gonna put a pin in and Google later. <laughs> yeah, I meant to, I think, and I forgot. As if my notes weren't already enough, <laughs> <laughs> long enough. I mean. Um, so the Alcatad Battalion, they led a scorched, they led scorched earth, oh my god, scorched earth operations and one of the worst massacres of civilians, now known as El Mosote. Um, so, and now I'm gonna tell you about El Mosote. So on the evening of December 10th in 1981, a few soldiers entered the village of El Mosote and demanded that citizens hand over their weapons. Villagers told them they had no weapons, and at this moment, soldiers killed a few people, and but then they left. And previously, soldiers had gone into these little towns, and if they saw all the doors closed, they didn't really do anything. They just kind of left. They killed a few people, pe- people. Oh my god! They killed a few people and they left. But if people were hiding in houses, they didn't go into the houses, drag people out, and mm-hmm. kill them. Like so, people thought they would be safe if they stayed and just hid. So, so they thought that it was over after what happened December 10th in the evening. So then in the early hours of December 11th, 1981, the Alcatat Battalion stormed and occupied the village. They ripped people from their beds. They burned houses and animals. They gathered all the townspeople and they separated the children, the men and the women they murdered the men first in uh, pretty horrific ways. Many of the women were raped and then <gasps> murdered. Uh, soldiers laughed as they killed children. And I'm oh not going to describe God. how they did it. It's truly horrendous. If you want more details on exactly how these killings occurred, I will warn you they are horrible. But you can read the book called Massacre at El Mosote uh, by Mark Donner. That gives a lot of details again it's truly horrendous um the the details don't matter you just know it's it was horrifying what they did i'm sure you can imagine i can i can imagine i'm and oh my god i'm getting sorry i'm getting teary that's okay it's quite horrible so and this happened over the course of three days and and it, the main village was El Mosote, but they went to like La Joya and about three other small villages that were all in the area. And so over the course of three days, it was estimated that nearly 1,000 people were killed. <gasps> that is a lot. Yeah, 1,000. And over half of them were women and children. Oh my God. So one woman, she was there. Her name was Rufina Amaya. She, when the men, women, and children were all separated, she was towards the end of the line because she fought and fought when her children were ripped from her arms by the soldiers. And that's why she ended up at the end of the line. 
And so when uh, one one mother ahead of her was like struggling against the soldiers because, again, they were taking her children from her. Um, all the soldiers that were near Rufina ran f- to the front of the line to help with that one woman. When Rufina saw there were no soldiers around this, she got on her knees and crawled towards the pine and crab apple trees that were in the distance. Um, and she escaped. This is how she she noticed like a commotion. She crawled towards trees. She pulled two branches down and she held on to them using the branches to hide her. Was she able to take her children? No. Oh how? There was no way. They had already been separated oh, at this point. Oh, okay. I thought like... Because this, this is why she was at the end of the line. Okay, okay, okay. She was fighting um, the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So um, she crawled away and she stayed hidden in, the, hidden in the trees from 5 p.m. until 1 a.m. the next day. Wow. She heard... But at this point, the men were already killed. Uh-huh. She heard the women being raped and murdered. She heard she heard all of this. And then once all the women were killed, she heard the soldiers, some of them preparing to leave. One of them, her, she heard one of them say, Faltan los cabrones, meaning there's the children are still left. And of course, that's not what cabrones translates to in English. Um, the little the little brats are still here or something like that you mm-hmm. could say it translates into put nicely right and so one person opposed saying we could just take them with us they're little kids and uh someone high up she and again she's just hearing all this she can't see who's doing this someone then was like what someone doesn't want to kill these children and they killed that soldier <gasps> that didn't want to kill the children wow and so someone said, if we leave, after doing that, if we leave the children, if we let them live, they're going to become future guerrilleros. They're going to join the left, the, mm-hmm. the guerrilla groups. And so um, Rufina Maya then heard them murder the children. Oh, my God. Uh, she heard children scream and cry. Uh, she heard them cry out for their mothers. But their mothers were all already dead. She fought the urge to leave her hiding spot because she knew her children were among them. Uh, in the book that I already mentioned, she goes she goes into detail about hearing her own children calling for her. Oh my god! The so her oldest was a, a nine years old, and she heard him yelling, "Mama Rufina, Mama Rufina, they're killing me! They've killed my sister!" Uh, oh my god! I'm sorry, I'm about to cry. I know it's fucking horrifying. Like, so she she didn't leave her hiding spot because she knew if she left, her children were going to die no matter what. And if she left her hiding spot, she was going to die, too. And she felt that if she stayed there, she could share what was happening with the world. So she she stayed there. She cried. She begged uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe, um, the Virgin Mary, to she begs her for forgiveness and um, because she knew that if she moved, she would be killed. And she felt that at the time, it was her purpose to share this atrocity with the world. So there were soldiers everywhere. Uh, she wasn't sure how she was going to escape from where she currently was by the trees. And then a, cow- a group of cows and dogs, they passed by like in a herd. 
And so she crawled between the animals. Uh, she crawled for a long time. At one point, she dug a hole with her bare hands and she stayed there to cry. Uh, she felt like she wanted to die and uh, she cried and begged and prayed for help to keep going. And eventually she did. She continued to crawl. She crawled past the sleeping soldier. By the time she was spotted, she was too far. They fired at her, attempting to, they attempted to find her, but by some miracle, they failed. She could hear the soldiers looking for her, and one of them said, Aquí no hay nada, son los muertos que nos espantan. There's no one here, it's the dead trying to scare us. She hid among, uh, how do you say this, Mag maguey, maguey plants? <laughs> the maguey plants, which is... Maguey plants, okay. Which is like a... Like a cactus. I'm sorry. Like I'm over here crying. It's like a, like a, you. like a cactus like plant that grows in the desert. Yes. So she hid among those plants until the next day, and she traveled through the mag. mag oh my God, magay, magay, magay. Magay field. Spanish. <laughs> I don't know how to say it in English either. It's magay. Me neither. She. <laughs> She traveled through the... I did it again. She traveled through the field uh, until she reached the river. And then she walked along the river for a long time until she found a little house. And she stayed in this little house for six days. She, at this point, estimates 10 days have passed since she escaped El Mozote. She was cold, hungry, thirsty. And she was uh, praying to God to run into other people. When she left this house, she ran into a little girl and her mom who had found her and she knew them. Uh, they took her in, they cleaned her and they went looking for Rufina's oldest daughter who was not in El Mozote because she was already grown up. She was an adult. She was expecting her own baby soon. So she didn't live in the same house in El Mozote. Um, at the same time, uh, guerrilleros came across Rufina and guerrilleros, they had heard what happened and they saw remains of what the army had done, but they hadn't seen or found any survivors until they found Rufina. She told them what she saw and they broadcasted this uh, on the 31st. They then they broadcasted like a mass and they said, this is in memory of the 1000 massacred citizens. And this was an estimate that Rufina gave them, like, that there was a thousand of them that were killed. Immediately, President Duarte got on the air and said these were lies. Uh, this was guerrilla propaganda. And it was true that the guerrilla did not have an exact count of how many were murdered. Now we know they weren't lying. It was 1,000. But at the time, they didn't have a number. Mm -hmm. So maybe it could have been propaganda, but it turned out to be true. And um, Rufina told the guerrillas exactly what happened. And almost like, I don't know, it's less than two weeks after she saw everything. And her oldest daughter took her in, helped her to start eating again because Rufina was distraught. She, she lost all her babies during the massacre except her oldest daughter. Um, her oldest daughter was pregnant and she would tell her, please, mom, you have to eat. We only have each other left. And if you don't eat, I won't eat and your grandbaby will die. And this, this helped Rufina regain her strength. Little by little, um, she, she did gain her strength. And, um, at all this, her testimony of how she escaped, I found it in a YouTube video where she's walking through the areas that all this happened, showing the people where she was hidden, where she crawled to, where she was crying in a hole. Like she's, she's pointing all this out 
and she does not at one point tear up she she's telling her story until she starts talking about her little children of course then mm-hmm. she kind of tears up a little bit but she's she's told this story so many times now um but yeah if you want to hear her directly i suggest you look up the video i'm gonna put the link in the show notes for it too it's on youtube it's all in spanish um but yeah she's going through everywhere she had hidden and where she was and the whole story that i just said but from her words and so rufina doesn't tear up while telling all this until she begins to talk about her children they were nine five three and eight months old and oh uh, sorry uh, that makes me cry a little bit because i have a little <laughs> i have a little seven month old right now <laughs> mm-hmm. and i cannot imagine the pain oh my god I'd go crazy, like, honest to God, I'd go crazy. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. And so her little babies, they were Cristino, Maria Dolores, Maria Lilian, and Maria Isabel. And um, she tells, uh, um, in the video, she's telling that, like, she was mostly fine, except when she would think about her her children, and she would, like, cry and cry. When she was escaping the massacre, um, she was still nursing her eight-month-old, and her body didn't know the baby was gone. If you're a mom, you know, like, your body, it just keeps trying to produce milk, yeah. uh, breast milk. And so Rufina could feel it, right? And and this would make her cry again because um, she didn't have a baby to feed anymore, but her body didn't know it. Like, that's, uh, that's so <laughs> excuse horrible. me while I dry up my tears so this would this would make Rufina you know cry all over again but after a while Rufina she no longer cried and she began to tell her truth so a month after the massacre three journalists met with the guerrillas and Rufina spoke with them and she told them everything Uh, six weeks after the killings the Washington Post ran a front page story with the headline Salvadoran peasants described mass killings. Women tells of children's death. That woman was Rufina Amaya. And uh, the New York Times followed with their story headlined Massacre of Hundreds Reported in Salvador Village. And this is all based on the testimony of Rufina. So uh, the United States, they didn't, uh, they immediately denied this, this happening, but they did an investigation and their investigation concluded that it was not possible to prove or disprove excess violence against civilians by government troops. Uh, it is certain that guerrilla forces established defense holds in the area and the guerrilla did not do anything to remove civilians from the path of the battlefield. And there's no evidence that civilians made an attempt to leave. They found no evidence that the number of civilians was anywhere near the amount that had been circulating. So they put out this report that was a bunch of lies, basically, and and blamed the civilians for their own deaths, essentially, is what this report is doing, lying and blaming them. But reporters saw the bodies. Reporters met with Rufina Amaya. Reporters believed her and... And in the video that I mentioned that Rufina's telling her whole story, she says, you know, don't don't think this this has been easy. It's been very hard. And yet there are people who deny this happened. And it happened. I was there. I survived. Those who suffered know this is the truth. 
And uh, in 1990, Rufina and another survivor, Pedro Chicas Romero, who was a child at the time, they filed a criminal complaint against the battalion, and Rufina Amaya was the first to testify against them. And before filing the complaint, Rufina had met with the Washington Post reporters um, who, who brought the stories to light in the United States. She didn't think, uh, she didn't think about how sharing the story in sharing the story she would become a target herself and when asked she she said why wouldn't i share the truth it's what happened um and again the salvadorian government denied what happened the united states government denied what happened they tried to discredit rufina they called her a liar and even though they were doing these things rufina continued to tell the story like standing up to two governments that is She's literally one of the most amazing women on the planet. And she had to go through so much to be the oh my god, I can't even cry. Yeah, again. yeah. Um, she would talk to journalists, she presented her testimony to the British Parliament, to the US Congress, to organizations across Europe and Canada. She presented her testimony during a protest in front of the School of Americas which was at Fort Benning when she did this. Uh, so she, everywhere she could, she was giving her testimony. Even after her testimony, both governments insisted, insisted that any casualties were not civilians, they were poorly armed rebels, and they went with their, this story. The United States didn't want another uh, Mai Lai in their history. Do you know what happened at Mai Lai in no, Vietnam? No, I, I don't. Oh, okay. So, um, that was the mass murder of Viet- Vietnamese civilians. Oh, I don't I know heard if I'm it. saying it wrong. I've, I've heard of it. Yes, 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 yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. By infantry, yeah. U.S. Army infantry, and and so yeah, they were gonna try and discredit her with everything they had because they didn't want another story like that to go to happen. But it did. The this battalion directly learned these tactics in the School of Americas. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rufina's account, it directly contradicted statements by the United States government. Rufina Amaya's testimony, it was vital to the investigation led by the United Nations. And this investigation is what allowed the, I don't know how to say this word, exhumations? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think so. It allowed the exhumations, exhumations? I'm sorry, I can't say this word. Exhumations? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And so the bodies were exhumed in 1992. And this confirmed Rufina's account of what happened. Because the report and the the exclamation was... Oh my god, I'm sorry, I can't say that word, everyone. It was led by a woman anthropologist uh, from Argentina and her team. They did all of the exhumation. Exhuma- oh my god. They dug up all the bodies. Yeah. And they the report did find everyone that had died was over half of them were women and children. They were unarmed. They were not guerrilleros. They were not armed rebels like both governments were saying. Like this completely, completely solidified Rufina's account of the truth. And this report and this, the digging, digging of the bodies wouldn't have happened without Rufina um, on the 25th anniversary of El Mosote, Rufina 
said, I'm not afraid. Maybe next December I won't be here. But I ask that you never abandon the memory of our children, of all the victims of El Mostote. Uh, Rufina, after everything, she lived in Honduras for a while, remarried. She had a daughter and an adopted son. She eventually returned to El Salvador. Uh, she continued testifying when needed. If journalists, reporters, or anyone, like literally anyone, came to her and asked her to share her story, she did. She never once denied a visitor. Uh, she eventually became a lay minister for the Catholic Church, and she worked with other survivors of the Civil War. Uh, Rufina Amaya passed away from a stroke on March 9, 2007, in a hospital in San Salvador. Uh, she died be before she could see any sort of justice for the loved ones she lost at El Mosote. The war had ended with a treaty in 1992, but the treaty included amnesty for the military and for people that, you know, had done atrocities and war what? crimes during the Civil War. Yeah. So this made it so no one could be tried for anything that happened during the Civil War, including El Mosote. I'm sorry, this is going to sound horrible, but the people's court does not agree. Yeah, that was like, everyone should have been brought to justice for the shitty ass, mm -hmm. horrible things they did during the war. But survivors, including Rufina Amaya, they fought to bring justice, They con and people continued to fight for justice after her death. Finally, in 2016, the amnesty from the Treaty of 1992 was declared unconstitutional, and the judge Jorge Guzman Urquilla reopened the case. Oh, thank God. Yeah. In March 2017, he charged 18 high-ranking military officials for war crimes or crimes against humanity. When the case was reopened in 2016, Rufina's youngest daughter, Maria Maritza Amaya, continued her mother's work. She shared her testimony. She advocated for the victims, victims of El Mosote. But one day, she noticed she was being followed, um, and while she was on the bus, a man in in like camouflage threatened her and so she requested asylum in the united states and luckily it was granted oh so God. she had to flee el salvador um when the case was reopened and after trying to continue to advocate for el mozote so in 2020 the investigations for el mozote they were still ongoing COVID kind of put a hold on them but then and I don't know, how much do you know about the current president of El Salvador, MJ? Um, not much. I don't know much about him, if anything at all. Okay. Well, he's got some diehard stands. And you know when people are stands of a president, oh, it's not a good sign. Oh my god. No. You know that what this reminds you of? Okay, first of all, Trump. But secondly, okay, that, yeah. that, uh, that Mexican um, president... Uh, before this one, what was his name? Because Fox. No, no, not him. The one after him. No. Uh, I can't remember his name, but I know who you're talking the about. The really handsome one. Yeah, I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember his name. And said it. Uh, it made me so mad because uh, Enrique Peña Nieto. Yes, Peña Nieto. Yeah. He had stands that would just voted for him based on his looks. Uh, just and it, again the stands. If any government, you know, leader has a stand, just check out. Check out right away. Check out from that party. It is not good. It's never good. 
Ever. Yes, exactly. And so, like, some people find this president, like, I don't know, handsome, blah, blah, blah. He's very much on his, if not already, a dictator. And I might get flack for saying this because, again, he has his stands. I uh, am not one of them. Ugh, yeah, he sucks. President Nayib Bukele, which is the current president. Yes, I know about him. My tia be... Pu- so... In 2020, he blocked the investigation, claiming that (gasps) the judge uh, had no jurisdiction over the military. And then he was, you know, uh, forced to hand over documentation over El Mosote. Um, And first he was saying documentation didn't exist. Then he gave information that they already had. So he's literally like, what's it called? When trying to block the investigation is what he's doing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, then, in 2021, Bukele passed a legislation that would force judges over 60 to retire. And this includes uh, the judge Jorge Guzman Urquilla, who reopened the case in the first place. And he still has stands? Yeah, yeah. Oh diehard stands. Oh my god. Uh, and he, that judge Guzman, he's the one conducting the investigation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was forcing all of them, like five of six judges to retire, which and, and then he would then replace them with his own people. Right. Wow. Essentially putting that sounds an end familiar. to the investigation. Yeah, exactly. So, however, the Supreme, the Supreme Court had announced that he would allow Guzman to stay on. Uh, but then Guzman, the, the judge, stated that if other judges were all fired, then he would quit. And I can't find any information on what is going on now with this. Mm -hmm. It seems that at the end of 2021, the judges over 60 did retire. And now the investigation has to start over. (gasps) I think that's where it's at. And it's hard to tell because, like, there's not a lot of information. And this is just among the other shitty things that, that Bukele has done. Like, there's a ton. But that's a whole nother thing now. Hold on. On the court of a spooky tales, guilty. Oh, for sure. He's, he, yeah, he's a shitty president. Recently, like earlier this month or at the end of February, more more graves were found at the site of El Mosote, putting, putting the toll, the death toll, a little over a thousand. Wow. See, yeah. when, when people ask me why I'm so into the paranormal, I'm like, yo, humans are the real monsters. Humans oh, yeah, are the real monsters, sure. and even though this may be history, we're 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 talking about real monsters right now. Yeah, but all none of this would have come to light if it wasn't for the testimony of Rufina Amaya, who, I mean, she went through hell like that is insane, and she had the courage to give this testimony everywhere and anywhere she could. And again, as you said before, against two nations. She held her own against yeah. two nations. Uh, did the United States ever, ever acknowledge the massacres? Did they ever retract their, their bullshit statement? I don't know if they ever apologized for their role in the Civil War and their role in the massacre. Because these were United, Stra- United States trained forces that did this. So I don't remember if they have acknowledged their role in this um, because they have one or, you know, that they tried to lie about it later when she gave her testimony. I don't know that they did that. I don't remember. 
Probably not. I could be wrong, though. I forgot to... I read about it, and then I didn't put it in my notes because I was mostly focused on telling the story of Rufina Amaya. I probably didn't. I mean, it's on brand. Oh, and let me say that, like, in 1982, after everything, Reagan called... um, in the fight to stop communism, these were like successes. This is what, what he addressed the them hell? as. Yeah. See, um, I this I also like a lot of people too, especially in maybe our age. No, maybe a little bit older, but millennials for sure. Not all the time, but they're like, oh my god, when Reagan died, this, 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 and that. And I'm like, he was a piece of shit. What are you talking about? Like, why are you standing a president who was a complete piece of crap? Yeah. Oh, my God. And then there's just, like, so many other shit like that. I mean, let alone he's the one who, int- what, what did he do? Like, the, the CIA thing, right? Where he introduced drugs to um, impoverished neighborhoods. That was all him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, like, just reading through this, I'm fairly certain that they rarely acknowledge the role they've played in El Salvador and in this massacre. Of course. Yeah, it seems, yeah, they have yet to own up to any of it. El Salvador was, like, you know, barely starting to do that trial and to, and had uh, declared, like, or not declared, uh, tried to arrest, you know, 18 officials. Mm-hmm. Of course they haven't. They never do. No, no, they don't. Um, But, yeah. Okay, so yeah, if you want to read more about the massacre specifically, the book I used for my notes is The Massacre at El Mozote by Mark Danner. And I'm going to put the link to the YouTube video of Rufina giving her testimony mm-hmm. if anyone wants to watch it. But yeah, this is uh, this is her story. And yeah, the, not an easy listen by any means. No. Um, but... She went on, you know, helping and giving a testimony everywhere she could. It's uh, the whole situation's upsetting. I thought it was going to get better, and then it didn't. Uh, as per usual. So, yeah, I don't know how to end this depressing episode. Uh, I think, like what we did last time, if you listened to us and got through this, um, go give yourself some love. Uh, do something to. That, that'll cheer you up. It's the best I got. Go go do something nice for yourself if you made it through this. And it's coming to be that season where migrants from Central America mm-hmm. try to make it into the United States. Uh, caravans are usually painted ugly in the media. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, just, I don't know. Think about the United States role in central america and latin america but especially in salvador yeah when you see these caravans and people just trying to find a better life you know yeah and i and continue sharing her story because i think now more than ever people are going to try to silence it especially in el salvador especially with the firing of all the judges the investigation coming so you know what we, we can't let this just go away so whenever you know like what we're doing now. Every time uh, Women's History Month comes up, share it. Talk about it. Yes. And I'm sorry. You could probably hear my child. Um, But yeah, just, you know, 
do some self-care after listening to this because this was hard. Mm-hmm. And take care. Uh, stay a spooky. And we'll catch everyone next time. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for our spookies supporting us on Patreon. Winston, Modesto, Cynthia, Perla, Jesenia, Kristen, Dalia, Mariela, Rene, Yamaris, Iris, Ghost Train, and Madtown Charity. Spooky Tales is hosted by Christina and MJ, edited and produced by Christina. If you're looking for extra ways to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash tales. And you can also check out our Patreon for bonus episodes and more. Go to spookytales.com slash support. You can also check out spookytales.com slash store for some Spooky Tales merch, like Stay Spooky Beanies, No Mames sweatshirts and hoodies, and Spooky Tale logo t-shirts. But of course, you have our eternal gratitude for just listening. Stay spooky!